Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Have you ever had that feeling that the end of the world has come? My guess is if you've been near children for any length of time, you will have witnessed that emotion being played out uh, on a reasonably regular basis. It doesn't take much for a child to think that something that has happened or something that they've lost really is the end of the world as they know it. Um, But aside from just kind of like that childish notion, my guess is that as adults, grown-ups left you in the room this morning, um, we've either been through or are currently living through circumstances which feel as if we're facing the end of the world. Situation, circumstances, a person, a status, loads of different things that when they're removed or when they change, it feels like the world that we live in is gone forever. Do you have something like that in your life at the moment, maybe, as I ask that question, something pops straight into your head? Maybe I need to ask another question. What is it that keeps you up worrying at night? The idea of it going would be like the world ending as you know it. There's so many things, health, relationships, objects, possessions, things that we love and our entire worlds are based around. So if they go, then for all intents and purposes, the world will have ended. We're in Mark chapter 13 this morning, and it is a chapter which speaks of the end of the world, at least the end of the world as the people who are involved in the chapter know about it. Um, is also a really good example of a part of the Bible which puts people off reading the Bible. Um, Would you expect to see a pastor preaching like that and explaining that? Um, It's the sort of passage, we'll get to it, and maybe you've read ahead in Mark and you already know what's coming, and you think, oh, I thought he was going to try and skip this one or uh, something like that. But it's the sort of passage that really makes us ask the question, what? What on earth? Where did that come from? Why is that in the Bible? What does that mean? Um, Since we've been going through Mark, I've undertaken just to read it from start to finish at least 10 times, probably 15 times. And every time you get to Mark chapter 13, and it's a chapter that just feels different. Regardless of what we will end up seeing is in it, it's a chapter that feels different. The pace changes, the language changes, um, it's the longest section of Jesus speaking without being interrupted. It just feels like a passage that is out of place. But even more than that, there are a few reasons why people would take a passage like this and just be really put off reading their Bible. Mainly, I think, because it's confusing and none of us like to be confused, do we? This is a chapter in which things are inevitably difficult for us, um, and there are things which are described that we're just not comfortable reading. 
Uh, not comfortable in the sense of, oh, I don't like the sound of that. Not comfortable in the sense of, we've got no idea why it's being discussed, and we've got no idea how it's being discussed, and we've got no idea, ultimately, of what's being discussed. Uh, Remark in chapter 13, records Jesus saying things in such a way that we simply, in the 21st century, aren't used to things being discussed. And that really puts us off reading it. I think there's, a, there's a, probably a, a better reason. It's because genuinely, Mark chapter 13 is a difficult passage. It's a passage which honest, well-intentioned people, kind of card-carrying, Bible-believing people, have genuinely disagreed with um, the ins, the outs, the whys, the wherefores, the minor details, the major details. Um, just this week, surveying all the commentaries, listening to various uh, past sermons and things like that, trying to get to the bottom of what Mark chapter 13 is all about, I found at least one, two, three, four, five, six different issues in the chapter which have at least two very, very reasonable interpretations. And so if we come to a different conclusion on even just one of those things, there's at least 64 decent understandings of this passage. You'll be pleased to know that this morning I'm going to go through all 64 and tell you which one I think is best. Obviously not. But there are, just, there are, there are things in the passage which are ambiguous, which are equally understood one way or another, and it just makes it a really difficult passage to get to the bottom of and, and to really, with um, a sense of certainty, know exactly what's going on. But probably... The reason that we would abandon reading the Bible, and especially abandon reading a passage like this, is because it can be a distracting passage. It's speaking, apparently, about the end of the world, the end times, uh, what will happen when Jesus comes back, what won't happen when Jesus comes back, things like that. And we just kind of know, culturally, don't we, um, that that is the sort of thing which just leads people down a road that we do not want to follow charts, predictions, dates, moons in the sky, things like that. People uh, have never really gotten bored of trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back and telling everybody else the exact date that they figured out. History has no shortage of examples of people who have wasted their time trying to do that. And I do say wasted their time utterly wasted their time because almost to a sect, to a group, to a person, they've, by history, been proven wrong. Um, you want an example of that? You don't even need to leave the Bible. Uh, one Thessalonians and two Thessalonians were letters that Paul wrote to people in the early churches who were so obsessed with the second coming of Jesus that they'd basically given up living for the now. There were people in Thessalonica, in that church, who had just decided, well, Jesus is coming back. I know it's going to be before the weekend, so why bother going to work? Why bother changing my clothes? Why bother having a what? You know, they had all these just bonkers things. They'd wasted their lives, it turns out, in the end. And we can, we can think of examples, especially in recent times, with the media as it is from around the world, of people who have with certainty stood up and said, yes, Jesus is coming back, and it's such and such a date and it's not happened. And so we just see, well, discussing it, thinking about it, it's a, dist a distracting thing. It leads people astray. You know, I'd actually 
personally pay a lot more attention to people who predicted the date when Jesus was coming back, if ever that date was, say, 400 years in the future, that it didn't somehow mean that Jesus was coming back conveniently when you were alive, make you someone who was important and special and experiencing it. Have you ever noticed that? People who are obsessed with the end of the world, it's always going to happen when I'm about to see it, as if, you know, you are the most important thing in the universe and it has to happen when you're around. And yet, I say all of this, I say all of this, but it's definitely a chapter which is in our Bible for a purpose. Because we believe, as people who trust in the Bible, that Jesus genuinely spoke to his disciples for a reason about these things. That Mark, the man who wrote Mark's gospel, genuinely recorded this and included it in his gospel that he sent to the church in Rome because he had a purpose for them to understand it. And I genuinely believe that the Holy Spirit has left it in the Bibles for us here at Beer today because there is a purpose, there is a point for us to understand Mark chapter 13. So be warned, we're going to be speaking about the end of the world bracket as we know it. Um, it's going to be confusing maybe. It's going to be difficult. You might find it a distraction, but I think actually we'll see before we finish together that it is with us this morning with a purpose. So, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to start at the start and we'll make our way through. Sensible. Okay. If you've got Mark chapter 13 uh, open, we're just going to start with verses 1 to 4. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what a magnificent building. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Okay, so that's the introduction to the chapter, and luckily it's the easiest part to to understand, and probably it's the most important part to understand, because this sets the scene for everything that Jesus is going to speak about the apparent end of the world. Transport yourself to the situation, okay? They're walking out of the temple in Jerusalem, and as they kind of stop and gaze at it, they are blown away. I don't think we particularly appreciate the grandeur of the building that they called the temple in Jesus' day. Um, It is, I think, one of the ancient wonders of the world. Um, It was the third temple that had been built in Jerusalem, and it was by far and away the grandest. It was one of the most grand building projects ever undertaken by humanity up until that day. It was ginormous. It had rocks and stones that were bigger than people. It was just covered in gold and jewels and all manner of things. And it stood just dwarfing everything around it. So they come out, and it's no surprise that one of the disciples turns around and boldly declares just how wonderful it is. Because it's theirs. It's their building. It's their special space that speaks to them and speaks to the world about the fact that they know God and God is with them. I mean, can you just imagine walking out and just having this giant building screaming out to you, yes, God 
Yahweh is with us. He is amongst us. You are safe. You are secure. You are loved. You are special. You are chosen. And if you've ever any reason to doubt that, look at this fantastic building. See, Israel's history is littered with occasions where God's blessing, God's presence departs from the people, and the temple ended up being destroyed. Um, And as you read through the Old Testament, one of the kind of the factors and uh, how well the people are doing spiritually is how much progress they can do in terms of worshiping the God uh, of their forefathers. Um, When they're being sinful, when they're rejecting God, when God is... um, judging them, then they don't really have the opportunity because of pressures from the outside to do that to its fullest extent. So even to have the time, the space, the freedom that Roman occupation uh, gave them to build this wonderful temple, this wonder of the ancient world, was kind of like just a witness to them that God was with them, that God cared about them that God was blessing them, that they were important to God. And remember that these are disciples who have this messianic idea, these expectations that have been building really culturally for hundreds of years of someone who's going to come, a king in the line of David, like like a prophet like the ones of old, a a priest who is going to make a final sacrifice for their sakes. And in a sense, this building... um, kind of solidifies all of that. All those kind of cerebral ideas, they now have, well, not flesh and bones, but kind of like bricks and mortar. All of that is kind of in a physical place. King was going to come. We were looking at it a couple of weeks ago when we celebrated, uh, when we read through Mark chapter 11, I think it was, the start of Mark chapter 11, what Rodri started us off with, with Jesus coming in. You know, this idea that there's a king who's come in and he's going to put everything right. And so they turn and they see this and it's just like, ah, oh, soothing. This is the world we live in, a world in which we have this building, a world in which we can know beyond doubt that God is with us and God is for us and God cares for us too. And then Jesus, as if it's nothing, turns to this group of disciples and says, yeah, won't last though, will it? Looks nice, but not a single stone is going to remain on top of another. Is he just being a grumpy Eeyore, the sort of person who likes to pour water on everybody else's fires? Off they trot to the Mount of Olives, a place just a little bit outside of the city, but where you can still really clearly see and take in this majestic building And I think very fairly, quite naturally, the disciples ask Jesus this question. You know, you said about the temple kind of like not being there anymore. It's a big deal to us. Uh, When? Like, Why? How? What's the deal with all of that? Why are you saying that this is going to be taken away? And so their question is very, very specifically about the temple. He speaks about these things. They ask him, when will these things take place, that these things are the temple being destroyed that Jesus has just prophesied, if you like. But, and I want us to see this and to understand this, for all intents and purposes, they are asking about the end of the world as they know it, aren't they? The thing that helps them feel safe and secure and happy in their life 
that they put their attention and their hope and their trust in, the thing that screams out to them is God is with them and God is for them, is going to be taken away. I asked you, what are those things that, if taken away, might feel like the end of the world as you know it? Well, here's what it is for them, or at least one of those things for them. If this temple is destroyed, Lord, then we don't know like, how to get on with our lives. So they're asking specifically about the temple, but in asking specifically about the temple, they might as well be, you know, speaking about the earth opening up and swallowing them whole. And Jesus sort of answers their question, but he really doesn't in a sort of direct way as well, which kind of seems to be his style. Um, But one of the things you'll notice is that he doesn't actually give a time. He doesn't say, as some people would like him to say, as the disciples wanted him to say, on this day, in this month, in this year. He doesn't give that. Instead, you'll see, what he does is begin to describe the world that they cannot imagine. world in which that place as a symbol and as a, like a hanger to hook their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations on is taken away. It's a hard world. And what Jesus really wants to do is to help them to see how they should live in it. Not when that world will come, but how you live in, the, in that changed world. Okay, so we'll carry it on. Uh, if I can remember which way this goes. 5 to 13, okay. This is Jesus answering the question, when will these things happen? When will that temple fall down? When will the world end as we know it? Jesus has said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Do you spot it? Plenty of the language that like conspiracy theorists and end timers would import in and say, well, look, we see this in the world today. These are signs. These are symbols. This is exactly what is going on, isn't it? Woe is us. The end is near. All of that. But what is Jesus really saying? In response to their question, when, does he say when? No, categorically, he does not. He does not say when it will happen, but he does say to them how, uh, oh, I beg your pardon, how you should live while it is going on. I think one of the things that is so often lost in the confusion that I started speaking about, you know, coming to a passage and just having terms and circumstances and pictures and illusions and scenarios that we're not used to seeing, 
is that we, we miss the, the woods for the trees. One of the most overwhelming things in chapter 13 is this. Jesus commanding his disciples to watch out, to keep guard, not to be alarmed, to stand strong, don't be found asleep, be alert, this, that, and the other. Fifteen plus such instructions. Not answering the question when, but instructing the disciples on how. How do you live in a world that is totally and utterly not like the one that you've been used to so far? When the world as you know it comes to an end, what do you do? Jesus cares not so much about filling us in on the date and the time, but on how we live in undeniably testing and difficult times. That's what Jesus is really answering here in chapter 13, and that's why he spoke to his disciples. That's why Mark left it, and that's why the Holy Spirit has given it to us here. Because what Jesus is describing, I don't know whether you appreciated this, but it's hard, isn't it? It's a hard world to live in. Not even from a personal point of view. It's a description of nations fighting, of natural disasters, of famines. It's a world in which people who proclaim, um, declare a faith in Jesus are attacked and harassed. It's a world in which even family ties aren't strong enough to save us or to define us, or anything like that. It's a hard, hard world. It's a world that will constantly be chipping away at the certainty, at the faith, and the hope that these disciples and we here today have in Jesus Christ. What hope are we talking about? We're coming up to Easter, so um, a lot of this will be made explicitly clear on Friday and on Sunday, but, you know, we don't need to wait until special dates in the calendar to do things. The hope is this, isn't it? That God is with us. That Jesus has done everything that is necessary for us to have, as he described it, life to the fullest. That God cares for us, not just kind of like in a distant, like, uh, they're, they're decent, you know, uh, I care what goes on with them, but it, with a fatherly love. That he's always seeking what's best for us and what's best for his entire creation. That is the hope that we have now because of what Christ has done. Him being crucified, resurrected, ascended, and promising to give us life in himself through his Spirit that's the hope that we have. That's the world that we're supposed to be living in. That's the world, the kingdom, that he's been offering to the disciples. But if that's what we're going to be looking at and thinking about, if that's what Jesus proclaims to us, the gospel, what Good Friday, Easter Sunday, if that's what they tell us, what does the world around us tell us? I mean, especially in their context of the temple coming down, okay? Think of that as just like like a grand event, the temple coming down. What does the world around us say? It says that none of that is true. God loves you. God loves creation. God wants what best. But why isn't the best as we understand it happening? Why do you suffer? Why do people you care about suffer? Why do people you've never ever heard their names before, but you've seen their pictures on the news, why do they suffer? 
Why do people hate each other? Why do people hurt each other? Why does the earth that we live in seem to be fighting against us? No, God doesn't care. God doesn't love you. God isn't with you. God isn't for you. None of those things are true. That's what life in this world tries to chip away and tell us. Jesus and his death and his resurrection scream to us, you are loved. The world and the circumstances that surround us are constantly whispering ever louder, ever more forcefully, no, you are not, no, you are not, no, you are not. If Jesus encourages his disciples that yes, in him and through him, God is with them, when the temple finally does come down, that screams so loud to them, no, God has departed. God wants nothing more to do to you. One of the people who came to Jesus with this question, Peter, like understood this later in his life, and he passed that message on to the church. He wrote this, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We've got an enemy that wants to take and shape any and every circumstance and make that circumstance tell us that the truth is actually a lie and that the lie is actually the truth. That Jesus is nothing, that what he has done isn't sufficient, that God doesn't love you, that you are worthless, that you are not loved, that you are not forgiven, that there is no hope, that there is no peace, all of those things. And Jesus says, when you're living in that world, guys, which surely will come, and which has come for us now, stand firm, be on guard, do not be deceived, be alert, keep going. Those who persevere will be saved. There's actually a whole book of the New Testament given over to this very thing, isn't there? We looked at it last year, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, which is written to people who just, but life has worn them down. They've come to faith in Jesus, but just event after event, opposition after opposition, they are on the brink of giving up on Jesus. And whoever wrote the book of Hebrews wrote it to say, no, do you know what? The gospel is still as true today as it was the day you first believed. It will carry on being true right until the end. You need to stand firm. Whatever else you're tempted to put your hope, your trust in, the sacrificial system, a specific relationship, a job, a possession, a house, a title, your own health, whatever it is, they will change. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Stand firm. How are you going to live in that world when the world as you know it comes to an end? Now, the world as they know it did come to an end. In 70 AD, the thing which they ask Jesus about that he's mentioned in the first couple of verses in which he's kind of like unpacking in the rest of the chapter did actually happen. Um, Jerusalem was laid under siege, and that magnificent temple was totally and utterly ruined, laid completely to waste. And so, in a sense, we can say, right, well, we don't need to have a debate whether chapter 13 is speaking about some future event that we're still waiting for, or something that has already happened. Um, it's, it's, he's answering a question about the temple, and the temple has been destroyed but there are hints, there are signs in it that he may be speaking about something more, something further. And I would just ask us the question, that description that we've already read 
of wars, of natural disasters, of persecution. Number one, it should remind us almost exactly of the book of Acts. That's the world that the disciples were about to go and live in up until the temple was being destroyed. But can we think of a time in human history when that has been true before or after AD 70? Well, I think we can. I think all of human history, if we kind of point the camera lens in the right direction, will show us these exact things. For nearly 2,000 years, these exact things going on. Uh, could we look anywhere in the world today and see these things? Yes, of course we can. And that's why so many people look at the world and come to the conclusion Jesus is about to come back. Because they see wars, they see earthquakes, they see famines, they see persecutions. Can we imagine for the next hundred years these things being true? Of course we do. We've got to have that realistic view of humanity that as much as we say we're going to club together and we're going to get things done and we're going to start live, loving each other and we're going to stop using plastic and everything will be a-okay, it won't be okay. Nation will still war against nation. People will still hate the gospel. There will still be countries in which it's illegal to own a Bible and you'll be put to death for owning one. Parents will still fall out with children. Children will still reject them. You know, all of these things. So Jesus is specifically speaking about the build-up to the temple, but it needn't be just that. For them, that was the end of the world as they know it. That symbol, that sign being taken away, and that realization that you live in a world that feels really, really, really hostile. But he's speaking about all of our experience, for everyone who's lived since that point onwards, and for us as we continue to live our lives. So how do Jesus' instructions help us there then? How does Jesus saying, look, this is what the world is going to be like. It's not going to be like anything you hoped and dreamed it might be. It's going to be hard. How do his instructions help us? Well, he gives us a few ways specifically of persevering. He speaks about sticking with the truth. He speaks about trusting God. He speaks about abandoning those things that we would normally seek refuge in. And if we carry on reading, that's the most vivid picture, I think, in the whole passage of all. Verses 14 down to 23. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, you see this is the sort of thing you encounter in chapter 13. We've got no idea what it means, do we? We follow the footnote reference to Daniel and it's even more confusing and it puts us off anyway. You see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. Let the reader understand. Mark, we don't understand it all, but never mind, we'll carry on. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not happen in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now again, this is almost certainly speaking specifically about AD 70. And yet what we see, I think, is a vivid, vivid picture to us today. In times of difficulty, in times of distress, when the world we live in hurts, where do we go? Where do we go to feel comfort? Where do we go to feel safe? Where do we go to feel loved and secure and just level again? It's difficult, maybe, to understand exactly what's being described there. It's literal events, but it's also filled with biblical imagery. 
Um, one of the things that I've been struck through um, up until this point, reading through uh, the Old Testament this year, is kind of like the role and the place of cities in their cultures, um, of how often when enemies come to attack, the city is the place that people are supposed to flee to from wherever they are to be safe. We'll get inside the city and no one will be able to touch us. That's our refuge. That's our stronghold. That's the thing that makes us know that no matter how hard the enemy attacks, we will survive this. We will get through until the end. Only here, Jesus is saying, when the end of the world happens, when the carpet is totally pulled out, get out of the city. Flee to the hills. That thing that you're used to trusting in, the temple, specific relationship, a possession which you cherish more than anything else, time in your life that is valuable, that is set aside just for you, and that's gone, that's taken away. Jesus says, don't flee to those things, flee from them. Abandon the things that you would normally look to in order to be safe. It reminded me of uh, a verse in Psalm 33. Psalm 33 uh, says this, No king is saved by the size of his army, no warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. Get out of the city. When disaster strikes, which it will, go from those things that you think think are so dependable because they're the very things that will ensnare you and lead to your destruction. King, when you're lining up for war, don't count how many soldiers you've got versus the next. Don't count the number of horses that you have versus the next because in the end it won't count for anything. What else is important, I think, for us is this picture of fleeing from the city to the mountains. That's what he says, isn't it? And it reminds me Psalm 121, I lift my eyes, where? To the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. When we're fleeing the city, when we're turning to the mountain, where are we supposed to be going according to the scriptures and according to Jesus? We're supposed to be going to him. To him. Everything that we normally trust in can be, not necessarily will be, but can be taken away from us, undermined in a moment. And the whole point, I think, of chapter 13 is for us to see and to us to understand that that is not proof that God has given up on you. That is proof that that thing is not strong enough to sustain you and keep you. It's proof, or it should be proof to us, that only Jesus is sufficient. Does that make sense? In all of the confusion of Mark chapter 13, abominations of angels coming, of son of man and darkness and things like that, does that make sense? That the things that we want to trust in, the things that we use to define our lives, the thing that we use to build this picture of the world as we know it can go. 
It, there are times in our lives, kids experience it on a daily basis. It says, we, I pray only once or twice ever, will feel like the world has come to an end. Jesus says, yeah, that's about right. And until I come back, you've got to trust in me. You've got to stick by me. Um, uh, a few more things. My, my time is going. But um, uh, just the end of the chapter, this is what we read. Learn the lesson from the fig tree, which if you were here when we were looking at the fig tree is itself a complicated and difficult thing to understand. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's just another hint that what he's speaking about is specifically the temple at AD 70, but generally true as well. But about the day or hour, no one knows. So if anybody tells you they do know, there you go. Not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going, uh, the time he could be speaking about the end of the world, or he could be speaking about events in your life that feel like the end of the world. He says, like a man going away, he leaves his house and he puts a servant in charge, each with their assigned task, and he tells one to keep watch at the door, uh, and therefore, says Jesus, keep watch, because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. And what I say to you, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, I say to everyone, Amherst Church, in 2019. Watch. You see, this is not just a question of what's going to happen to the disciples and how they're going to live their lives. It's certainly a question for us. Jesus' promises that he is going to come back, that he is going to come and put everything right. He is going to make sure that this dark world that we live in now is done with for good, but he calls us very specifically to do something in the meantime to trust in him, and to shine. Now, we can envisage this in our heads, can't we, of lightness and darkness. What he's been speaking about for the majority of the chapter is a light being extinguished by the darkness, of a candle kind of like burning down to the end and just fizzling out, and darkness winning. You know, that picture of the world that we live in pressing against us, pressing against us, pressing against us until... We're done for and we're snuffed out. Uh, I don't know whether you know this, but light always beats darkness. That's just a general rule. Uh, you can't like turn darkness on and fill light, apart from maybe in a black hole. Um, but in, you're in a dark room, you turn light on and it, it fills the space. And that is really what Jesus is calling us to do. In a dark world is to not be extinguished, but to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. Part of that keeping guard, part of that keeping alert, part of that keeping going isn't just clinging to Jesus, but is sharing and offering a hope that does not fail to people who are clinging to things that are going to be ripped out from under them. Don't give up then. This is how I want to finish. Don't give up. Don't let your light be extinguished. Don't let your hope 
run out just because the world keeps chipping away at you, just because life keeps chipping away at you. Keep going. And if you're a believer, keep shining. Keep spreading the good news. Keep spreading hope. Instead of the darkness overcoming us, we are called to shine a light into the nations. And we can. Because though Jesus is gone, he is still with us by his spirit. You read back through Mark chapter 13, there are so many clues and clues that Jesus is with us and he's empowering us for that very thing. The light is greater than the darkness and we are people of the light. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing to finish. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that we have uh, space and time to look at, to unpack things which normally we might put on a shelf and ignore. Lord, we thank that even in this most difficult passage in Mark's gospel, Lord, there is purpose, there is point for us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see in our lives what are the things that we are clinging to, like the temple, like the city, like the, the, the uh, king and his army and his horses, Lord God, that make us feel comfortable, Lord, that aren't things that can last Help us instead to listen to Jesus' commands over and over again in this chapter. To stand firm, to persevere, to be alert, to keep watch, to not be deceived, but to set our eyes on the mountains where our hope and our rescue come from, from you, Lord God. Help us to be a people who in that oppressive darkness shine all the brighter, rather than our flames and our light getting smaller, getting bigger and spreading out, Lord God. Be with your people, be with us, be with your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.